the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 43, March 1969. In an earlier newsletter, number 24, September 1967, the subject of Christian Reconstruction was discussed. It was pointed out that in any advanced social order, social financing is a major public necessity in order to maintain a vast network of social institutions which require financing and support. Historically, there have been in the main two means of social financing, first, by state taxation and then state control and maintenance of the various social institutions, which must be maintained, and second, by the law of the tithe, whereby the tithe, as God's tax, is used to maintain education, welfare, religious institutions, and a variety of social functions. Earlier, the tithe-born was a familiar aspect of the Western world. Religious foundations, lay and religious orders, ministered to a variety of needs providing welfare, education, hospitals, orphanages, grants to the arts, and much more. Until World War II, gleaning was a familiar part of American rural life in some areas. Organizations like Goodwill Industries had applied the gleaning principle to urban life. Education as a state function is a relatively modern concept. Through the Depression of 1907, welfare in the U.S. was taken care of by churches, foundations, and various similar agencies. It was Pendergast in Kansas City who saw the political potentialities of welfare as an instrument of political power and instituted the first tax-supported welfare program. Other civil units saw the possibilities of political power in welfare and quickly followed suit. The law of the tithe was gradually eliminated in America over Washington's disagreement and gradually replaced by state taxes, in particular the previously unknown property tax. The revolutionary ferment from Europe was largely behind the desire for state action. After 1860, this revolutionary influence merged with still another influence, Darwin's doctrine of evolution. Social Darwinism led to the application of ruthless egoism as against Christian individualism to the economic world and the, quote, robber barons, unquote, emerged. In a congressional investigation during President Buchanan's term, members of Congress referred to Vanderbilt not as a capitalist. In fact, they denied him that title. He was a government manipulator. In example, his wealth came from government contracts gained by manipulating politicians. But with social Darwinism, 
the new breed began to deny all social responsibility and formed a working alliance with the state in order to exploit the people and all natural resources. Since then, this socialistic alliance of big business with big government has added to itself big labor, big foundations, and statist education to make up our modern establishment, with the big churches as the chaplains of this new order. We are dealing with amoral power today, power which allies itself with power against the weak. As a result, socialism is the best means ever devised to give more power to the powerful and to make the rich richer. There are, incidentally, more millionaires in the Soviet Union today than in Russia under the czars, but the middle class is gone, and the workers are far poorer. Social Darwinism meant a denial of social responsibilities by the socialistic industrialist. When the demand for these social functions became too great, the answer of social Darwinism was to tax the middle classes and the poor to maintain education, welfare, and all things else. The middle classes are being now steadily expropriated in their possessions on the plea that the needs of the people require it. True, the needs of the people do require something, but the status, quote, something, unquote, is the destruction, first, of the middle classes to provide for the lower classes, second, the destruction of the lower classes to provide for the state, and third, civil war within the establishment as social cannibalism sets in. Socialism, moreover, because it is by nature a parasitic economy, is also imperialistic. It exercises an imperial confiscation towards its people, and it must also expand and gut fresh territories in order to gain fresh resources. The Soviet Union has been and must continue to be a ruthlessly imperialistic power to survive. Moreover, the more the U.S. becomes socialistic, the more it will require imperialism to survive. A parasite, when it destroys one host body, requires another to survive. The social functions of statism, of socialism, are thus aspects of its imperialism and, and parasitism. When the state assumes social functions, its purpose is statist. The state is more concerned with its survival than with the survival of some people or a class of people. The statist assumption of social functions removes responsibility from the people and promotes social isolation. The statist talks largely about loving mankind, but acts in actual contempt of man. He accuses the orthodox Christian of holding to a low view of man, because the Christian believes man is a sinner. But Christians hold that man is a responsible sinner not a conditioned reflex. It is the Christian who requires man to be responsible, whereas the status makes the state responsible. The tithe has a major social function which needs restoring. It is futile to rail against statism if we have no alternative to the state assumption of social responsibilities. The Christian who tithes and sees that his tithe goes to godly causes is engaged in true social reconstruction. By his tithe money and its activity, he makes possible the development of Christian churches, schools, colleges, welfare agencies, and other necessary social functions. The negativists, who have merely complained against statism, have steadily lost ground since 1950. 
Those Christians who have concerned themselves with Christian Reconstruction have, since 1950, established a vast number of Christian schools as well as other agencies. Within 15 years, almost 30% of America's grade school children were no longer in the state of schools. What we must do is, first, to tithe, and second, to allocate our tithe to godly agencies. Godly agencies means far more than the church. In the Old Testament, tithe went to the priest and Levites. The priest and Levites had a variety of functions in Israel, religious in the sense of ministering in the sanctuary and religious in the sense of providing godly education, music, welfare, and necessary godly assistance to civil authorities. The realm of the godly of the Christian is broader than the church. To limit Christ's realm to the church is not biblical. It is pietism, a surrender of Christ's kingship over the world. The purpose of the tithe must be to establish that kingship. This means stewardship. We are not our own. We belong to God, and all our possessions and wealth are a trust from Him. This trust means, first, a responsibility to care for our own, our families. We have a responsibility under God to care for our parents and for our children. The family is the world's greatest welfare agency and the most successful. What the federal government has done in welfare is small and trifling compared to what the families of America do daily, caring for their own, relieving family distresses, providing mental care and education for one another, and so on. No civil government could begin to finance what the families underwrite daily. The family's welfare program, for all its failures from time to time, is proportionately the world's most successful operation by an incomparable margin. Beyond a certain point, however, the family cannot care for its own without sin. If children are delinquent and reject authority, or if they grow up and depart from the faith, we cannot subsidize them in their sin without sharing in their guilt. They cannot be partakers of heirs of what is the Lord's inheritance. But, within the circle of faith, the family must care for its own. Second, as we go outside the family, the minimum requirement of God's law is the tithe, God's tax on man. The tithe can be used as we, under God, feel led to use it, provided always the receiving agencies are doing the Lord's work in their areas. We need to assess the need for Christian reconstruction and then conscientiously support those agencies which we believe best further it. A church, an organization dedicated to creationism, or the cause of Christian education, missions, Christian scholarship, and so on. In all this, we must be mindful that the cause is reconstruction. We have an obligation under God to bring all things into captivity to Christ and under His dominion, to establish Christian order. Too many Christians are engaged in fighting a local small battle if they are fighting at all. But we are in the midst of total war and must be engaged with total dedication and a total plan. Without this perspective, we waste much of our time, activity, and money. There are many who say, how can I pay my taxes and still tithe? Incidentally, many who are rich and many who are poor are tithing and still paying their taxes. But you have no other alternative. Are you going to wait for the state to lower its taxes? The state will never lower its taxes, nor will the people permit it to, as long as the necessary social functions 
are left in the hands of the state. We have higher taxes because most people demand them, and they demand the services the taxes provide. People only oppose higher taxes for themselves. They favor, quote, soaking the rich, unquote, soaking the unions, the railroads, the gas companies, the telephone company, anyone and everyone except themselves. The problem most legislators face is the unrelenting pressure for higher taxes from people who are demanding new services for themselves at public expense. And this always means taxes. We cannot wait for taxes to be lowered. We must begin now, not merely to tithe, but to begin Christian reconstruction with our tithe, to reestablish the necessary social functions as Christian action. We need to do this in delight and anticipation of a godly order. We also need to do it in fear of the consequences if we do not. Either we work to establish a godly order, or we go down into the hell of total statism. We need, moreover, to fear God. Most people are afraid of prison if they fail to pay their taxes, or of confiscation of property at the least. They need to fear God also for all their sins of commission and omission. The God of love has been preached so long that we have forgotten the sovereign and almighty God whom we must fear as well as love. Shall we rob this God of his tithe, the tithe which is his ordinance for our own prosperity in terms of godly order? Yet we rob him when we deny him the tithe. Malachi 3, 8-12 Let us therefore serve God in that true love which fears to offend his love, and let us work for Christian reconstruction in every sphere of our lives and our world. Calcedon Report number 44, April 1969. The question of conspiracies is often discussed and seldom understood. Usually the term, quote, conspiracy, unquote, is reserved for the hated opposition. Communists refuse to regard their movement as a conspiracy because they believe in its historical inevitability. Only the enemies of the proletariat are conspirators. Similarly, in the 1880s, the bomb-throwing anarchist of the day actually held that, quote, anarchy is the negation of force, unquote. Their reasoning was their capitalism was using violence, the police power, to block the historically inevitable death of the state, so that anarchist action was simply an attempt to nullify force. Again, South American military regimes hold that they seized power to block radical conspiracies. They themselves were not conspirators, but patriots. While one of the dictionary definitions of conspiracy is that it is a, quote, combination of men for an evil purpose, unquote, another meaning is a, quote, combination of men for a single end, unquote. Conspiracies thus are more than enemy action. They are any and all plans to gain a particular goal through more or less covert action. The important question to ask is this. What makes a conspiracy work? Let us suppose that a number of us conspired together to turn the United States into a monarchy and ourselves into its nobility. Let us further suppose that we could command millions from our own circle to achieve this goal. Or, let us suppose that with equal numbers and money we conspired to enforce Hindu vegetarianism on the country. In either case, we would have then not a conspiracy, 
but a joke. A successful conspiracy is one which is so in tune with the faith and aspirations of its day that it offers to men the fulfillment of the ideals of the age. It is an illusion to believe that dangerous or successful conspiracies represent no more than a small, hidden circle of diabolical men who are manipulating the world into ruin. Such groups often exist, but they only exist and succeed because their plan and hope is closely tied to the public dream and the faith of the age. If the threat were only from small circles of hidden men, then our problem would be easy. Then, as Burton Blumert has observed, quote, If we only unmask the conspiracy, all our problems would be solved. But if the trouble is in all of us, then we really are in trouble, unquote. He is right. We really are in trouble. The Enlightenment dream, as Louis I, Breadfold, pointed out in The Brave New World of the Enlightenment, has five basic tenets in its faith. One, there is a rejection of the past and of history. Man makes himself and his world, and the past is a hindrance. Two, there is a rejection of institutions and, quote, customs, unquote, in particular, Christian institutions and standards. Three, evil is not in man, but in his environment. Four, quote, by changing human institutions, human nature itself will be born again, unquote. And five, those who should manage human affairs are the scientific planners, the educators, and the statesmen. These are the men who best represent the will of man in terms of man's potential and future. Man today believes this with all his heart. All over the world, the reigning faith is in this democratic, humanistic faith in the scientifically guided order. The communists affirm democracy and the ballot box. They hold elections even though there is no choice on the ballot. Men who have started private or Christian schools all too often subscribe to democracy to the point that they insist on giving teachers and parents a voice in a school which represents only their funds and planning. The result is democratic chaos or failure. The myths of the Enlightenment infect us all. In church, state, school, press, in every area, the myths are held with earnest faith and zealous endeavor. The conservative, in most cases, simply holds to an earlier version of the myth. Recently, I heard a number of conservative candidates for a city school board speak, and almost all simply repeated the basic humanistic faith. Within the first few minutes, I jotted down these sentences. Quote, the proper education can cure all our ills. Unquote. Quote, the right to vote is the most precious right man has won. Unquote. Quote, we need representation from every ethnic group in order to be just, unquote. Quote, you can do without everything else in the world, but you can't do without an education, unquote, and so on. If tomorrow the secrecy were stripped from all conspiracies and their goals revealed, most people would merely say, quote, well, isn't that what we all believe, unquote, and go on with their daily lives. A conspiracy has power to the degree that it speaks to the prevailing beliefs and hopes of the day. And our age as a humanistic one, dedicated to, quote, man's fulfillment, unquote, in a humanistic sense, is ripe for every conspiracy which promises to deliver on those dreams. Man believes that he can make a new start, create a paradise on earth, without God and without regeneration. 
We have for some time been in process of revolution against Christianity, and we have been moving towards this, quote, great community, unquote, of man. Our establishment, political and educational, represents the older phase of the revolution, and youth is in part in rebellion against the older phase of the revolution in favor of a faster fulfillment of the dream. The more radical the conspiracy, the greater its appeal, because it is then all the closer to the dream. The basic myths of the day are so much a part of the age that most conservatives simply want to return to an earlier phase of humanism. They believe in status schools, in the priority of politics to religion, economics, the family, and all things else. But meanwhile, some people are losing faith in the dream. They are dropping out. They are dropping out because the humanistic dream has failed them. No new faith has taken its place. As a result, their attitude is one of total negation. They hate the dreamers of the dream, the men who make promises, and they hate the society and social order which surrounds them. As dropouts, whose faith is negation, their only action is to destroy, to burn, loot, kill, and bring down the old order. There is thus a double revolution and conspiracy at work today. First, there is the humanistic revolution against the whole world of Christian order. This revolution is well entrenched and nearly successful. Second, there is the revolt against the new humanistic establishment by its own sons who are bent on destroying everything in sight. This is a revolt within the revolution and against the revolution, and it is present in the Marxist states as well as in the West. Thus, we are in trouble. As Arnold Rosen observed in The Age of Crisis, 1962, quote, Only dreamers believe there is a peaceful way out, unquote. Communism is dedicated to the total destruction of Christian order and the conquest of the Western and Eastern non-Marxist states. The democracies are steadily moving into dictatorships. The student generation is disillusioned with the whole of the present era and is readily led into hostile and destructive action. And the economic crisis is steadily pushing the world towards a total monetary collapse. Our crisis goes deeper than a circle of conspirators. The conspirators themselves are creations of our faith, called in part into being by our own apostasy. When men forsake God's law order, they must inescapably resort to a man-made order, and this is what men have done. The answer is not simply to unmask the conspirators, but to unmask ourselves, to know that we are sinners in rebellion against God and His law order. Ours is a total problem, a religious problem. It cannot be solved on any other level. It is thus distressing to see a man who denounces Marx turn then to Emerson and write glowingly of him. He has not gone far from Marx. After all, before Marx, Emerson had renounced Christianity. He was a high-level leader of the Secret Six conspiracy, which worked to bring about the Civil War and financed John Brown. Members of the Secret Six helped Horace Mann bring in the state school system. One of Emerson's closest associates and a top-six leader, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, founded the LID and the Intercollegiate Society of Socialists. The distance between Marx, Comte, 
Emerson, Stalin, Whitman, Hitler, F.D. Roosevelt, John Dewey, and others is a short one. They were all humanists who offered variations of a humanistic dream. Their dreams and their world are under God's judgment and shall perish. If we are not to perish with them, we must move in terms of another order and rebuild in terms of it. The duties are ours. The results are in God's hands. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.